Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. So we're breaking a rule on this week's podcast. We've only broken this rule once before, um, which is that I'm going to interview somebody who's not actually with me in the studio. I like to I like to be in the room with the person. We did this once before with the guys from The Minimalists, and we're doing it again uh, with Claire Brown, who's a uh, economist at uh, UC Berkeley in California. I wanted she she wasn't going to be in New York City anytime soon, and I really wanted to get her on because she has this very interesting new book called Buddhist Economics, which comes out at a very interesting time in uh, in our uh, politics and in our economy. And she really tr- tries to imagine what would the economy be like if the Buddha was running the thing. Uh, she's fascinating. Uh, she's going to say things that you may disagree with, but uh, hear her out because she's definitely thought this stuff through. Here we go. Here's Claire Brown. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm happy to join you. How did you become a Buddhist economist? I was teaching Econ 1 at UC Berkeley to 800 students with my 20 graduate student teachers. And we taught free market economics because it's so simple. It's so easy to learn, and it's pretty powerful. But I was out walking my greyhound. I was a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. And we, like, looked at each other. And I'm thinking, you know, how would Buddha teach Econ 1? Because it really matters how income is distributed. Equity is really important. Sustainability. We have to care so much about global warming. Somehow we aren't covering that well. So we should rethink it. How How would Buddha teach introductory economics? And so it started from there. Talk me through the process of you actually becoming a Buddhist, because you, you, it's not like you are, you are a lifelong Buddhist. No, not at all, Dan. It's, um, I didn't have one major event like you did that got you meditating. Instead, I tried different forms of Buddhism or spiritual practices over the years, but nothing really clicked for me. And then one day, a Tibetan Lama moved not far from my house in my neighborhood and opened a meditation hall in an old Episcopal church, and I thought, oh my gosh, I used to be Episcopalian, and now it's Tibetan Buddhist meditation. Let me go try it. (laughs) So my husband and I tried it, and we really thought our teacher was just terrific, Anam Thumkin, and so we started practicing with him. And now, mind you, this is like a 10-minute walk from my house. It's like my neighborhood, and uh, I started sitting, meditating every day, and practicing, and it was just fantastic. I, I had that same reaction you had of, wow, this is a terrific improvement in my life. And, and so you're, you're, you're being an economist predated your being a Buddhist. Uh, how big a shift in paradigm did it require to start applying what you were learning in Buddhism to what you'd been studying for so many years uh, as it pertained to the economy? It, it was a major shift, although many economists, including Nobel laureates, have been making that shift, such as Amartya Sen, where he looked at people's capabilities and their quality of life. And the major shift in the paradigm goes from what's human nature. So in free market economics, we assume people are selfish, they're egotistical, they only care about themselves, they're not altruistic, and all they care about is consuming, and more is always better. 
So the whole focus in life is consumption, filling up your closets full of stuff, shopping, and going out and buying things and getting more and more income. And it's a, it's a win-loss situation. One, one person doing better and consuming more is somebody doing less well. Well, if you think about Buddhism, one of the things I love about it is that you, first of all, you think human nature is kind and altruistic. And that's your inner Buddha. Everyone has an inner Buddha that's kind and loving and altruistic. Now, we may cover it up. We may, we may not be in touch with it. But one of the things with meditation, as you talk about in your book, over time when you meditate and sit, you actually become more compassionate. And so if you start assuming, oh, everyone's interdependent with each other and with nature, and that one of the things I want to do is actually overcome my ego and feel my, feel my connection and my compassion for other people, which is a wonderful improvement in, in the way you live. First of all, you, you, you end up doing a win-win. You no longer are competing with everybody in terms of who gets to buy this or who gets that promotion or who wins this game. Because when you help other people be better off, you feel better off. And, and the neuroscientists have showed us, if you want to be happy, actually go out and help someone. That makes you happier. So, so one of the biggest shifts in the paradigm is actually what you assume about human nature. And then the second shift is what do you assume about what makes you happy? So you move from an egotistical person just focused on who they are and they get happy by shopping and consuming to human nature that's kind and altruistic and becomes happier by helping other people, feeling connected to people, helping nature, enjoying nature, and also creating a meaningful life. So it's a, it's a major shift, both in how you see the world and also how you think the economy should be structured and performing. But so I consider myself a Buddhist, um, but I I'm not gonna lie here. I I like buying stuff. I like making money. Um, so am I a bad Buddhist? No, 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 no. Actually, that's a great question because you aren't giving up caring about material possessions or doing well, but you are giving up. The important thing is to first of all not harm any people. So when you're making money or when you're going out and sort of getting ahead in the world, you, you don't do it on, on the backs of other people. You don't do it by lying, lying and cheating and, and thinking you're the big deal maker and you'll do anything to get the deal. So that's number one, don't harm. And then the second one is to not get attached to the outcomes. Don't get attached to all your possessions and your materialistic way of life. You want to stay detached. Otherwise, you're too focused on materialism, and you aren't really thinking about your human spirit, and you aren't really thinking enough about how can I make my life meaningful? How can I actually help the world or help other people? So for your example, you actually, your book really helped a lot of people. And you didn't write your book. When you wrote it, you didn't hurt anybody. You were just presenting your story to the world in a way that really connected and made other people find more meaning in their lives. So it's all sort of how you do what you're doing, 
and how you feel about it and your willingness to share with others. Well, I appreciate that on one level and that you're, you're letting me off the hook. But, I mean, if you re- a, a, a close reader of your book will notice that you talk about the economy as a big global system where what we the decisions we make as consumers can actually harm people on the other side of the planet or animals in our very neighborhood um, or the whole planet through the climate system. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote my book without hurting anybody um, that I know of. Um, but, you know, I still fly on airplanes and I still eat meat and I still... My wife and I sometimes make expensive purchases instead of just giving that money um, as as you quote an economist, I believe it's like Peter Singer or somebody like that, who talks about the fact that, you know, every decision you make is there's an opportunity cost there because you could probably save a life. And yet, you know, we just bought a fancy chair for my kid's room. And I think about these things, especially after reading your book. And, and I really do wonder whether I'm whether it's a bad Buddhist. Does that matter? Or maybe just bad human being. Yeah, I, I think what's important is when you're buying things, you're actually conscious of it. You think, is this causing harm? And I noticed your example was a nice chair for your child's room. It's like, hey, Dan, that's a that's a nice chair for your kid. Um, it wasn't an extra pair of fancy boots that you threw in the closet along with your 12 other pairs of fancy shoes. And then you talked about flying, and you know that actually flying has a terrible carbon footprint. Um, that was one of my worst carbon footprints, and I started, in fact, in our at UC Berkeley, I was working with a lot of engineers. I said, we're going to start doing conference calls. We're not going to keep flying everywhere. And they loved it, and it worked out. But it's like, you know, I only did that once I learned how bad my carbon footprint was from flying. And then you think about now when you go to buy a car, you really should buy a Tesla if you can afford it because it's so much better for the environment. Or you can lace an inexpensive a leaf a car or a Spark EV. But to right now go out and buy a gas-guzzling car and drive it around is really a terrible idea. It's, it's not good as Buddhist practice. It's not good any practice, in fact, because it's killing the earth. As, as Pope Francis said in Laudato Si, he was so clear about it. He said, look. If you put any carbon in the air, you're hurting people. You're killing people. It's a sin. It's not moral. It's like, okay, he was very spot on. So we should be very aware of what we're buying, how it's affecting the world, how it's sort of impacting on us as individuals. But the point is, is you're aware, you're thinking about it, which is like what we should all be doing, right? Well, I'm thinking I mean I'm thinking about it right now because I spent the last week listening to your book um on 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 tape um and it really got me thinking and I go through these jags where I think about this stuff like vegetarianism or or veganism or uh, conscious uh consumption and and then I, you know, forget about it and lapse back into being a typical upper west side, you know, white guy. Um and so I really do have some, and I think you're hearing in my voice, some guilt about this. And also, on the other hand, some sort of skepticism about, like, you know, how far do we take this thing? Every time I stop at a bodega and buy a pack of gum, should I be thinking about, you know, who made this thing and where? And and so I guess I have a lot of questions. You could start anywhere. Well, I, I think these are difficult questions, especially in the U.S., especially in New York City, where people 
always look good and they are all comparing each other. How do we look? What are we doing? Where's your vacation? I mean, those comparisons are, well, Veblen said, invidious comparisons. And it is really good, I think, when people start making some of these comparisons, if you ever can just stop and say, hey, you know what? This is an invidious comparison. You say it to yourself because, of course, you want to be kind. They're your friends. But you might even think about it and find a way to talk about it in a way where you're no longer making the invidious comparison. And you might even, if you had thought about a mindful way to, say, take your vacation, you could talk about that. Or if you're thinking about a less carbon-impacted way to get around town, which you can do in New York, you can talk about that. But you can talk about it in a way that actually tries to get people away from their sort of competitive materialism into being more thoughtful about what they're doing. Now, let's take meat. I, I agree with you that the meat issue is really, really important, and I'm not a vegetarian. I, I, don't, huh. I actually would be if I lived alone, but my husband has some health problems and needs to eat meat. But we, once I wrote this book and I saw the carbon footprint of beef and lamb, which was way worse than pork or eggs or cheese or chickens, you know what? We looked at each other and we said, no more beef and lamb. We will stop. Now, I got to tell you, I grew up in the South. I love lamb. It's my favorite meat. I haven't had it now for a few years. And I don't miss it anymore. But it's like the carbon footprint of beef and lamb is so bad that one of the messages in the book is let's just stop beef and lamb or eat them just in a really rare instance. But then the next step is you don't need to be vegetarian, but, you know, if you would cut your meat consumption down to like two ounces a day, you know, you need more meat, four ounces a day, but max like really cut back how much meat you eat, it would be an incredible improvement. It would cut the methane, one of our hottest greenhouse gases, way back in the United States. It would stop a lot of the cruelty that we practice against animals, but mainly we would stop killing the earth by overheating it. So I, I think there's a lot we can do that are like small steps, but have big impact. I like that. I like that you're not a maximalist because I do think that makes it exponentially more doable. What are the other steps? You know, as a as a as a consumer, as a participant in the economy, what are the other steps? Well, let's personalize it to you. What else have you? What other change now that you've become a Buddhist economist rather than a, a free market economist? What are the other big changes you've made in your own behavior? Right. Well, we we talked about flying. We talked about eating. I definitely buy less. I. I make my clothes last longer, and I I try very well. Okay, here's my true confession. I hate shopping. It was like <laughs> such a relief. Oh, good. I hate shop. So a lot of people love to shop, and some of us don't do it very well, and we hate it. So that was actually somewhat a relief. Oh, good. I now have a good reason to not have to shop so much. Um, and the other things that become very important are our use of electricity. So the biggest greenhouse gas component in the United States was electrical generation. But now that's just been surpassed by transportation. So I think we each need to think seriously about our transportation, but also our energy use. So three years ago, 
I leased a Spark EV. I had a Prius. It remained my backup car. But we got an electrical little Chevy Spark EV. I hadn't been in a Chevy lot in decades. I I loved going back to Chevrolet. It's like, hey, this this car built in Korea, (laughs) sold through Chevy. Um, Great little car. I loved an electrical vehicle. It was quiet. It was fun. The lease ran out, and I had to give it back last month, and I really miss it, so I need to go find another electric car. But then also on energy. Now, in California, it's easier to do it. I'm going to tell you we did. We barely turn on our heater, and instead, we have lots of blankets and sweatshirts that we hand out (laughs) to people. And we have a super-efficient wood-burning stove that when we really need to feel more comfortable with guests, we, we can burn a little wood um, from eucalyptus trees in our neighborhood and so we use very very little energy and we've tried to get rid of all the gas appliances in our house because using gas is very bad when you can get clean electricity so in our county we were had the option of buying 100 percent clean electricity and now in new york city people are getting that option to be able to buy 100% clean energy from wind and solar. So we signed up for that and then we tried to get rid of all the gas appliances and use of gas in our house so that we could use only electricity and that's the future. We're all going to learn how to live from electricity only that hopefully is all clean which means wind and solar. It doesn't mean gas. The idea, the gas companies really sold us a bill of goods. They taught us about so-called natural gas, which is methane. And methane in the first 30 years is 80 times hotter than just using petroleum. And it's not, it's actually a little bit worse than some coal-fired plants. So this idea that we're going to go from coal to gas, natural, so-called natural gas, I just have to call it methane, is going to make it cleaner is a misconception that the gas companies uh, have taught us. So we need to really push to say, no, we really do need to move to wind and solar, and we need to do it quickly. And we need the government to continue helping with subsidies and the infrastructure and so forth. Because right now, we're subsidizing fossil fuel companies, and that should stop. And we're, we're, we're thinking about investing in a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure. That should stop. But you can see I'm quickly moving from what do we as individuals do to what does a country do? Because our actions as individuals are shaped and formed by the government policy. Well, let me, let me stay on the individual level just for a minute because I suspect some people listening to this are thinking, uh, you know, I'm just trying to – survive. I'm, you know, I'm so busy. I've got kids. I'm, you know, I got, maybe I've got a couple jobs. Uh, I don't have any time. So like, how am I going to um, make the time to like investigate where my power is coming from, investigate where this next sweater I bought was, you know, stitched, make sure that I'm getting locally sourced meat and veg, um, all that stuff that, that would make me a proper uh, Buddhist economist. What do you say to that kind of pushback? Well, I'm not even sure that's how you become a so-called proper Buddhist economist. <laughs> I, I think, first of all, if you buy less, you have a lot more time. And your life gets much simpler. And so that, in and of itself, gets rid of some of these problems you mentioned. 
And then the other thing you really want to care about is are you enjoying life? You really want to enjoy life. And how? what are you doing to enjoy life? You're right. Families like parents who are working and raising kids are so stressed out and have so little time that one of the most important things I think is how can I simplify life? What can we do where if we simplify life, if we buy less, if we just think a little bit harder about um, sort of what's important to us, let's start focusing on that. And I think one of the most important things we learn to do as working parents, because I was a working parent when my, you know, for 20 years, I think we learn to say no. No to um, the things that we decide really aren't important to us, we don't have to do. And we say yes to more time with our kids, more time with our neighborhoods, more time with things that we actually think are fun. And we end up sometimes saying no to things that we think, gee, is that okay? Is the boss going to think it's okay? But I think the boss will say it's okay if you're real clear about why you're doing it. This is my, you know, I have to do this with my family. I'm doing this for my kids. And just be real clear about it because we need to enjoy life. We're supposed to be happy. We aren't supposed to feel just stressed out like, oh, no. And I think, Dan, we would all feel a lot better if we step back and look how good our lives are. It's astonishing how good our lives are. And the next time we're feeling, I don't have enough money or I don't have enough of this or that, step back and say, is that really true? What what can I cut back on? Or what can I do that I really don't care about? Because I want to focus more on the things that really matter to me. Now that's becoming a Buddhist economist. It's focusing on what matters to us and finding the space in our lives for it. Interesting. I mean, I I agree with you about not taking things for granted and seeing how good our lives actually are. I feel that way, although I'm aware that I'm enormously privileged and was born on third base and um, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I definitely think it's true. I, I wouldn't. I would. I'd be careful personally, just myself telling other people because I, I don't know if other people's lives are as good but uh, I definitely I definitely agree with you for myself that it makes a lot of sense and can mitigate a lot of suffering to just do the simple and very cliched thing of counting one's blessings you can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network plus when you switch to T-Mobile Families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. 
The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So you you tried to steer this the conversation earlier to sort of the larger structure of the economy, and I, I, I derailed you, but I'm now going to put you back on the rails. What, what, how would America look different if we ran the economy as a Buddhist economy as opposed to a free market economy? And I guess the, the second part of that question is, do you have any realistic hope that we will actually ever do that? Oh, I have great hope that we will do that. I, I almost think the country was like in an alcoholic binge in some sense in that we, we were just getting out of kilter. We let inequality just get out of hand. We are contributing way too much carbon emissions and, and causing a lot of global warming. Per capita, uh, per capita per GDP, we have the highest carbon emissions of any of the major countries. And so we were things were really getting out of hand, and we weren't really doing the job we should be doing on our two biggest challenges, inequality and global warming. And so it's like we... We elected Donald Trump, and it's like we've hit rock bottom. It's like, okay, so now he's really going full speed ahead on on the fossil fuel industry. He's going full speed ahead on getting more income for rich people and rich companies. And so it's like, oh, okay, we've clearly hit rock bottom. So all we can do, in my opinion, from here is go up. And so then you say, oh, okay, well, what would a Buddhist economy look like? That's exactly the right question for me. So we know, we know from George Stiglitz and Amartya Sen and Tony Atkinson, some of our very best economists on inequality, that a country chooses its level of inequality. And they've demonstrated that. And we know the policies that will reduce inequality and, in, and make a more just economy. And so Joe Stiglitz takes us through it in his book. Tony Atkinson gives us 15 policies. Robert Reich gives us a slew of policies. These are policies that are known to reduce inequality and make people better off, make the country better off, improve well-being. Are you talking about higher so taxes we, here? Well, we're talking about not, not necessarily higher, higher taxes, more progressive taxes. We're talking about less consumption of the rich for more consumption for those in need. So economic growth has gone disproportionately to the rich 2%. So in the last recovery from the recession, the top 1% to 2% of the population, the richest, took 95% of the fruits of economic growth. It's like, what? No, no, that's not right. And we don't want to do anything 
that increases income of the rich while we're hurting the poor. So we want to do the opposite. One of the nice things about Buddhist economics is because of people's interconnection and people being altruistic at their core, that when you take money from the very rich so that they maybe spend it less on exotic vacations or a new yacht and give it to families towards the bottom, they're buying better food, better education, safer housing. Their families are much better off. So that's what those are the kinds of policies that economists who care about inequality tell us work. We know they work. Higher minimum wages, decent jobs, restructuring workplaces so people have more time off for children and, and for, for taking care of sickness. We have lots of ways to make the economy better in terms of improving well-being and making it more equitable. And, and let me just go one other step to our other major challenge that I work on a lot, um, which is sustainability or global warming. Economists also get to choose the amount of carbon emissions that our economy puts into the air. So we know we have to decouple the economy from the fossil fuel industry. And in Europe, they're doing a pretty good job of going forward on this. And in California, we're starting to finally go ahead on that. And the U.S. was starting to decouple the economy from carbon emissions until the price of gasoline went so low and then consumers all started trading their Priuses to get SUVs and pickup trucks. So, so that was unfortunate that we let the price of gasoline go low and we didn't slap on a carbon tax, but we didn't. And consumers took us back a step. But we... We can go forward again. It's our choice as a country. It's our choice how many carbon emissions we put in the air. And we know the policies that, in fact, would stop that. We have two roadmaps. Mark Jacobson at Stanford and the Deep Decarbonization Plan of the UN shows how all the countries around the world can reach the Paris Agreement 2%, uh, two, rather, 2 degree temperature raise or less by the technology we have. And in the United States, that technology to go to 80% clean energy by 2050, uh, go, according to Mark Jacobson at Stanford, would cost us only 1% of our GDP, which is nothing. So it's like we have these choices. We know the policies. We have the technology. We just need to really push ahead on it. We're learning. We're going to understand that this, we really do want to create a much more meaningful life with more equity and, and less global warming. Well, if we look at your policy prescriptions in, in total, um, in terms of what it would take to make us a Buddhist economy as opposed to a, a free market economy, what's the pushback? If we had a, a hard-nosed free market economist on this podcast right now, what would she or he say to you to debunk your claims? I think they would say, look, people are selfish. People have egos. People care about having total freedom of choice. That's all they want. People want total freedom of choice. They don't care about what's happening to other people. That's not what makes them happy. They really do want to keep buying, and that's really what they care about. They love materialism. They aren't going to feel any better if other people are better off. They really aren't. They don't care. I think they just push back on what's human nature and do people 
care about a meaningful life and other than buying, buying and consuming and sort of get getting ahead in their own mind. So I think that's where a lot of the pushback is. And, and you know, there there is a group of Americans that do feel that way. And there's also a group of Americans where they say, don't tell me what to do. I have my own idiosyncratic personality and I don't want you to touch it. Yeah. So what do you say to them? I say to them that every single study of what makes people happy, in fact, find people are happier when they're in a community where they can help people and people are getting better off. And that it is true that there are these few outliers that are super competitive and no, don't, touch, don't touch my turf. But in fact, those people aren't happy. We have our inner nature. I am sure every single person at some level internally is kind and generous and loving. But we know how we can cloud that over and we can, we can take on sort of an external view of the world where we, all we care about is getting ahead, winning the game. We can take that on. And it is true that I think winning the game making a purchase, it does make you happier, but not for very long. And so the studies on happiness show that, in fact, there's this reversion back to your former level of happiness or unhappiness. So you have this constant need to keep going out and trying to overcome your pain or your unhappiness by once again going out, consuming more, getting ahead, winning. And it's like an endless struggle. And it's the insatiability. So yes, yeah, so it, but it's endless. It's like it's not going to give you lasting happiness. So I think you sort of need to separate out what gives you a big burst of happiness, of euphoria, and what gives you meaningful happiness over your lifetime. Are you going to end up with hedonic happiness where you just want quick pleasure, no pain, but it's here and, it's here and gone? Or do you want the Aristotelian happiness of, hey, I want to create a meaningful, worthy life. I want to develop my full potential as a person. I want to be part of a community that I give to. But there, aren't there a lot? I think there are a lot of conservatives who, who push back, who, who, who would accept that meaning is extremely important. Um, you know, I'm part of a church. I'm part of a community. We serve others. We adopt foster children, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want the government in my life in such a, an excessive way, taxing me, um, setting up rules that I have to abide by, making sure I buy a certain kind of car, et cetera, et cetera. How do you respond to that? Well, I think the first thing you want to do is to start on sustainability and say, look, without the government, we are going to kill the planet. So with global warming, I think you can bring people together much more in an understanding of the role of the government. It's absolutely critical of governments around the world. We're all in this together, and it has to be done fairly rapidly to bring down the carbon emissions so that we don't overheat the earth, or more than we have. Now, when you get down to equity, I think, I think you get into more, um, more disagreement. So, for example, you, you talk to someone who thinks of themselves as a churchgoer, a Christian, and you talk about the starvation, the terrible starvation in, um, say, southern Africa, sub-Sahara Africa. 
and usually they'll admit that that's actually unfortunate that that maybe we should think about that but then they say but you know I'm already doing this or this or this and that my answer to that is you well you know the UN and their Millennium Development Goals over a 15-year period brought down extreme starvation and extreme hunger enormously and they did it by the countries the rich countries coming together and having a public-private plan it's not just government but it's a public-private plan that targeted how to reduce extreme starvation and hunger and they didn't totally wipe it out but they put like they reduced it by like 80 percent they were also able at the same time to raise education especially for women and girls and to reach some other targets that really improved people's lives and made people much better off and so now it's just a matter of figuring out how to work with the UN and all the other rich countries to do things in the world that most people would actually agree yeah actually those are good ideas and in that respect the role of the government isn't directly impacting on them right but it is you know we are in a in an America first era right now and uh, the argument seems to go along the lines of we've got crumbling infrastructure here at home, why would we be sending money to countries overseas? Well, certainly we should spend money on helping countries overseas before we spend it on new weapon systems. So it's not like we aren't... I agree that we need to rebuild the infrastructure, but once again, we don't need to rebuild the fossil fuel infrastructure. We don't need to build new weapon systems instead of helping impoverished nations, which would then actually help us abroad. It's like for foreign affairs, we know lots of ways that we could spend money in a much better way that would help us abroad in terms of countries helping us and people liking us and undermining terrorists that are recruiting people with vows of revenge against the U.S. So it's like we, we know how to actually spend our money better than just more weapon systems or at the US we don't want to think rebuilding the infrastructure is rebuilding is building a wall along Mexico and we don't want to think rebuilding the infrastructure is building pipelines to carry oil all over the United States for me rebuilding a modern infrastructure is critical but it means transit systems and transportation systems and livable cities and efficient buildings and clean energy to give us a modern infrastructure for a competitive economy. And then the U.S., who has been a leader in green technology, we make money from it, we can remain competitive globally and at home on clean energy. If, if we don't do that, if we go revert back to building an infrastructure for fossil fuel, then China is going to take over the leadership of green technology along with Germany and France and we'll lose our position. So it's not like, if you want to define what makes America great, to me it's being a leader in green technology, building a modern infrastructure so our economy moves to a, a competitive, robust economy in a green energy era. And, and we can do that while we're improving people's well-being. It's like, we know these policies, we have the technology, we can do it, but it's not it's not building a fossil fuel economy or weapon systems. Before we close, just a, a, um, um, I don't know if the right word here is 
theological or doctrinal, I don't know what the right word here is, but a, a question about Buddhism, because you've said repeatedly in our conversation, and you say in your book that, uh, the, that Buddhism holds that people are essentially good. My understanding, and I'll admit right now that my understanding is not always uh, the correct one, um, uh, some might argue rarely the correct one, my understanding is that's kind of a later Buddhist claim, like um, um, uh, something you would hear in Tibetan Buddhism, for example. Um, I've not understood that to be a claim of kind of the old school Buddhism that I've studied, and it is a claim that's um, hard to prove. I mean, we can prove that humans have their better angels, for sure, but that are that we have some core Buddha nature. I've always wondered about that. To me, the proposition that, I, at least as I understand it, of Buddhism, of the kind of Buddhism that I've practiced, which is Theravada Buddhism, which is, as I've, I sometimes refer to as old-school Buddhism, it's more that we have the capacity for all sorts of urges, wholesome and unwholesome, and we also have the capacity to train our minds and our brains to develop either or um, so that I can, through meditation, I can train myself to be more compassionate or through not meditating and indulging my my, uh, sort of less wholesome urges, I can get better at better at being a jerk. So I just wonder what your your take is on on the foregoing. Yeah, I think that I'm certainly not a Buddhist master by any means, (laughs) but um, I, I... do know what you just said, and and I actually agree with it. I I myself practice Mahayana, Mahayana, but when I was in India a little over a year ago, I spent quite a bit of time down with the Theravada uh, learned monks and talked to them about it. And they said, actually, people try and make this differentiation, but it's really not there, because as long as we see the world and our place in it, is people are all interconnected. We're interconnected with with nature. And we all have terrible, terrible urges that we do need to tame. You know, we have our clashes. We have greed. We, we have moments when we're angry and misbehave. We, have all, we all go through. We're all human. Um, and, we, and, and our meditation does help us to sort of see that and how to maybe deal with it better. But they said, don't spend too much time worrying about the differentiation between the various branches of Buddhism because they all teach us not to harm, and they all teach us to develop our good nature, and the things that are, they all teach us to develop compassion, loving kindness, and caring for others. And so it's like, they they convinced me. They said, and actually at one point, the the two schools were together, and then the 8th century, they diverged, and and then they started getting very technical on me. I said, oh, I can tell that this is more than I could ever learn. Mm. And they would smile, and they'd say, that's okay. The main thing is to know that we know what how not to harm, we know how to help, we know how to love and be compassionate. And we know that all these other glaciers or bad urges we have are things that we all continually work on overcoming. Makes makes sense to me, uh, Claire. What a what a a pleasure to sit and chat with you. Thought provoking, very much, uh, very much so. And both this conversation and your book. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. It was wonderful talking to you, Dan. And thank you for your book and for your outreach to the world. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank 
heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.